Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay. I'm sitting here with Monique Dana, and we're learning about really turning your traumas into superpowers. Monique is a coach, uh, executive leader, uh, ex-corporate boss, and she is here to tell us about how her childhood has given her a sixth sense for detecting toxic workplace patterns and helping others get over them. So, Monique, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. So, you know, in the first segment here, we like to talk about your From the Ashes story. And from our little talk before, it sounds like you had you know, quite a rough start. Uh, can you share with the listeners what that was like for you? Sure. I experienced a series of traumatic events and losses starting pretty much at the time I was seven. My mother died in a car accident, in a car crash. I had a younger brother who was only two. He was removed from our home right about the same time. I was cut off from my mother's side of the family at that time. I also had a near drowning experience. And then abuse stemmed uh, from my father and grandfather, uh, neglect. And I witnessed the abuse of other family members. So it, it really was this series of traumatic events that continued. We began moving around a lot. So I was uprooted from my childhood home. And then I ended up running away twice as a, a young teen. And then I was married as a teen and dropped out of high school. So that whole series of events really impacted me. I lost a lot of my memories from childhood and started really manifesting some strange behavior as a, as a child. I remember one instance, I must have been eight or nine. I got into a bag of, of rags, old clothes that we had that were all ripped up. And I pinned them all together and made an outfit for myself. And I went to school looking like that in pins and rags. Not sure why I did something like that, but of course, the school called home, sent me home. I was punished. And really, other behavior like that continued. I manifested this strange habit of before I would sit down, I would turn in circles. And then I would sit down. And these are just fragments of memories that have come back to me. The drowning experience really left me wishing that I had not survived. And that was when I was seven. That was the same summer that my mother was killed in her car accident. So there were a lot of these situations that really made me feel like I would rather just be invisible. 
out of sight, out of mind, out of sight, no abuse, out of sight, no neglect. And everything felt unsafe for me as a child. My, my world felt unsafe. I became really withdrawn. I immersed myself in books. So I became an avid reader, even at age seven, I was reading books well beyond my level. I spent a lot of time in nature by myself, but I also became hypervigilant, had a lot of anxiety. I remember being referred to as being high strung as a child, had a lot of headaches, stomach pain, insomnia. It really, the trauma infiltrated every part of my life as I was growing up. And I'm just going to pause there for a minute because I know that was a lot. <laughs> um, do you have, you know, any, any questions or yeah. any direction you want to go from there? Oh, no, it's, I mean, that's a ton. I'm just sitting here feeling that story. I mean, I can't imagine the back-to-back just losses and abuse that, that you suffered. I know you said that you don't have a ton of memories, but I'm wondering, do you remember how you made sense of all that? Like what you thought at the time or how you tried to understand the world around you? I'd imagine that would be difficult just to feel like you want to be alive or that you want to participate. As a child, I felt really isolated and like that was safe for me to, to be isolated, to isolate myself. And I think that's partly why I lost some of my memories. I, I think it was a coping technique to for survival. But at the age of about 16 is when I got married. And that marriage was actually the idea of my father and stepmother. And I went along with it and I did get married. And as I got older, in retrospect, I realized that that was another form of survival for me. I was trying to get out of my childhood home and just into any other situation. Unfortunately, it took me into an abusive situation. But to me, that was, I guess it's between the devil that you know and the devil that you don't know. And I picked the devil that you don't know to try to get away from my childhood home. But prior to doing that, I was sad, angry. I wanted to desperately be loved by my family and needed. And that was not happening, which then led me to the two attempts at, at running away, just running towards something, not even knowing what that was. And all of those things put me in a lot of danger with a, a young girl running away. And in one instance, I was hitchhiking down the highway, very dangerous situation. And even the, the marriage that I went into, I didn't get married because I was pregnant. I, had, I was married five years before I had my first child, but that situation was dangerous also. And just feeling, I felt very trapped. No matter what direction I went in, no matter what decision I made, I felt really trapped. And dropping out of high school, I, I finished the ninth grade, but I was married by the time I was in 10th grade and dropped out. And again, in some ways, that was putting me in a dangerous situation because without the skills and a high school diploma, there's not much that you can do these days. 
So every decision I made was not the best, but it was an attempt to remove myself from the unsafe childhood situation. Yeah, it just makes me sad hearing that. I wonder, were there, like, where were the other adults in the situation? Like, were there any teachers or any community members or other family members? It just felt, it just sounds like you were so lost. I was very lost. And a vague memory I have was my, my mother died in the summer. And the following school year, I was in second grade. Those were the days where teachers were allowed to spank and, you know, corporal punishment was allowed in the schools. So I remember being punished a lot, even in school, just for things like not paying attention or talking when the teacher was talking, things that today would be overlooked. So even the teachers in the school at that time, I felt were also contributing to me feeling unsafe. Mm -hmm. And the discipline that they rendered at that time, the spanking and pulling my hair and things like that. So I didn't feel safe going to anyone like that. And I actually think I was too afraid to use my voice at that age mm -hmm. in, in any possible way, because there was always this threat hanging over my head of, I'm going to get into trouble when I get home kind of like when I dressed in pins and rags, my punishment that night was going to bed with no dinner, which happened quite frequently as a punishment withholding food. So I didn't feel safe going to anyone outside of the home. I had been disconnected from my mother's side of the family. So it was really just the my father that lived in the house and he remarried within a, a year of my mother's death. And that woman also was very dysfunctional. So there really wasn't anyone else to go to that was an adult that could have helped at the time. Yeah, that's rough. So you were just kind of scattered to the winds. Right, yeah. right. Very lost. So what happened as you moved into young adulthood, right? After the marriage, how does the story continue? I remarried or married the first time at 16, and that was an eight-year marriage. I had both of my daughters when I was 21 and 22, but that continued. I was in an unsafe situation. That person was abusive in a number of ways, and I witnessed his abuse of a lot of other people. Incidents like road rage, where he would just stop the car and get out with a baseball bat and break the windows out of another car. And I was there watching. So we were in court a lot because he was arrested a lot and paying fines all the time. He didn't hold a job. And of course, I had dropped out of high school. So I also didn't have the skills for a very good job. So I did get my GED. I went back and got that. And I think I was about 17 or 18 at the time that I got that. And I really started realizing that this was going nowhere. My life was going nowhere. And at that point, I had, when I was 21 and 22, I had my two children. And I started to think more about them. What does this mean for them? So even though I was pretty still irresponsible at that age, I did take my responsibilities as a mother very seriously and wanted to get 
my children out of that situation and into a, a better place. Something with stability. I had no stability and I wasn't even sure what that felt like to have it. But I just knew that I was constantly scared and felt unsafe. Mm-hmm. So I did leave my husband after about eight years of marriage. But because of that abusive situation, it didn't really end there. So I was stalked. I had my tires flattened. There was retaliation. And I even left the state. I left the state that I had been living in and oh, resettled. So you really had to flee. I did. Right away. Yeah. Yeah. And tried to start fresh, left everything. I, I think I got on the plane with an overnight bag for myself and a diaper bag for the, the, my two daughters and really tried to start over. So at that point, I had a little bit of help from some family members. And somehow I got a job, didn't pay much, but it was, it was a start. So I relied for a while on help from the state for groceries and things like that. But I started realizing that I I wanted to feel more empowered and I wanted to be successful, still not knowing how to define that. But that's what brought me into the corporate world. I figured the, the best way to make money, and at that time, for me, it was all about how do you make the most money to survive and to raise these two kids? So I figured going into some kind of a job in the corporate world would pay the best. And at that time, the best was $8.50 an hour was what I made uh, as a corporate employee. But I had benefits, insurance, things like that. So it was the first time ever that I had had insurance. Even my two children, when they were born, they were born without insurance. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was a huge milestone. And I could actually take them to the doctor when they were sick and get myself to the doctor when I was sick. And then within that environment, I wanted to work my way up, but I started to notice a lot of the toxicity in the corporate world. A lot of micro traumas were happening, things that were triggering me and that reminded me of my past, controlling bosses, bullying, aggressive behavior, a lot of toxicity. And I was super sensitive to that kind of behavior. And now I look at that as maybe a blessing. It, that sensitivity has helped me in my work with executives. So I feel that I've developed some of these superpowers because of my trauma and being highly sensitive to that kind of behavior. But I worked my way up in that company and changed companies a couple of times, tried some other companies to see if the toxicity would lessen. And it really didn't. But again, that's what helped me gain the skills that I now use today as an executive coach. Yeah. Do you have an example of a toxic work environment that you saw? Maybe something that a boss said or something that you witnessed? Yes, I was I was bullied by a female manager for about eight months where I was called out in front of people, made to feel humiliated in front of my team members. And when I finally tried to confront her, I, again, received a reprimand 
for confronting her about the behavior. But then I reported her to HR. And at that point, they did an investigation and the, the bullying stopped almost immediately because I used my voice. So it must have been a big moment for you to actually speak up and in some ways speak up for the little girl that you were. Any time I've used my voice as an adult is a big milestone for me. It's gotten way better over the decades, but those first instances where I had to learn to do that, it was very stressful. But then after I did it and saw the outcome of that, it was really empowering. Yeah, just to be seen, right? And to be respected and to stand up for yourself. Is, right. It's huge. It's huge. Um, and to stand up for workers too, right? Or people that are on leadership teams so often. I mean, some of the work that I do, people just get abused. And I hear some stories where I'm like, I cannot believe that's what's happening in a professional work environment, you know? Like yes, yes. Personal attack, blackmailing, you know, bullying, ex exclusion, everything. It all happens. It's wild. It does. And and I was so shocked by that. I guess I figured in a corporate environment, there would be professionalism, there would be standards. And I thought I would be safe in that kind of environment. But then once again, I felt unsafe. And the people that were in power, that were the highest in power, were the ones that were behaving so toxically. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to move into our commercial break. When we come back, I want to talk a lot more about that, about what you see in your work now as a coach or what you saw as you were climbing the ladder. Uh, specifically, what do you think, you know, goes on with these leaders? You know, how do they climb? Is it just bullies get rewarded or is there something else there? Um, I'm really interested in abuses of power and it's such a timely topic as we, we've been seeing those all over, you know, the nation for the past, you know, call it three to five years. So we'll, Talk about that on the other side. Um, for those of you listening, thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you on the other side of the break. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit Mark dash azulay dot teachable dot com that's mark m a r c dash azulay a z o u l a y dot teachable dot com it's your world motivate change succeed voice america empowerment dot com You 
are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back. I'm sitting here with Monique Dinault, and we're talking about toxic work environments, right? Toxic patterns, micro traumas, bullying. Uh, Monique, where do you think this comes from? That's a big question, but what do you see in the work that you do that has a professional work environment just degrade to being a really hostile, toxic place? I see a lot of companies where it somehow is ingrained in the culture, where the leaders have those kind of patterns themselves and it infiltrates the culture of the company. I see other companies where it's not so much the culture per se, but it's individual leaders that have that kind of behavior. And in those situations, my clients come to me telling me these things and they're not sure how to handle the situation because the person is high in power. They treat everyone that way. And my clients are afraid of losing their job. They're afraid of retaliation. Even though we now have policies against retaliation, it does not always work that way. Yeah. I mean, the, the human element just gets so entwined. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's weird because I mean, I work with some of those leaders that are in power that come from and just abuse their their employees, right? Like oftentimes the company will call me and if they don't want to go to HR and they want to go to an outside therapist, right? If they want to kind of keep it, keep it a little bit quiet um, and they don't want anyone inside the company working with something. And there's, you know, there's a story. There's often like abuse in these people's backgrounds, but oftentimes they think what they're doing is normal because of that power bubble that they live in. No one ever raises their voice. No one ever challenges them. And it's something that maybe worked early in their career and they've just doubled down, doubled down, doubled down so many times until they become, I mean, truly a tyrant in so many cases. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. They they didn't weren't told ever or given feedback that they had this kind of behavior. So they go through their careers thinking it's normal and okay to behave like that. Or somebody tries to give them feedback, but they're not really sure how to give the feedback. And so it's kind of this double-edged sword. If someone's being abusive, they need to be called out about it. But if the person calling them out doesn't quite know how to do it or say it, or they're kind of afraid to be direct about it, then the person who's being abusive still isn't getting the message like they should. So it really takes a very concentrated strategy almost to give that kind of feedback. And then you have to be very sure that if there is retaliation, you know, that you, you have a plan B (laughs) because people don't want to lose their jobs. That's the biggest fear of my clients who come to me with these things. They don't want to lose their jobs. They don't want to lose the income. They've been accustomed to a certain lifestyle that they have achieved because of this level of income and this, this job, this role that they're in. And they don't want to do anything to mess it up. And they have families 
they have bills to pay, they have a mortgage. So it makes sense from their perspective that they're nervous about confronting someone. And those who do go to HR, sometimes they don't have a strong HR department or a strong HR business partner that they're working with. So even HR doesn't take an assertive stance with something like this. And it creates this vicious cycle. The the behavior continues. People are unhappy because of the behavior. So it can cause people to leave the company. So then there's hiring that has to be done, onboarding, training, which costs money. And nine times out of 10, the person who leaves the company goes to another company where maybe the same thing is happening. And it it wasn't dealt with in the first company. It's not dealt with in the second company. That employee still is not able to use their voice. So it's still creating this, this cycle of dysfunction. Yeah, they're just getting repeatedly traumatized over and over again. Right, right. And a lot of the people who are sensitive to being treated that way, like myself, they have been traumatized already in their background or their childhood. And maybe they never healed from it, or they didn't do any of the work that they needed to do to heal from it. So they are continuing to be re-traumatized. And then they have all their symptoms of anxiety and everything that kicks up for them and their dysfunctional behaviors because of their unresolved trauma. So when I work with leaders, it's if it comes up in coaching, because I'm as a coach, I'm not allowed to bring that up. They have to be the ones to do that. But we, we work with their behaviors. They, they all come to coaching because they want to be better leaders and they want to lead their teams better. So that's a kind of my foot in the door where I can start working with them and we start unpacking certain behaviors that they have. So since I'm not a therapist, I can't directly work with them on their past trauma, but I can work with them on their current behaviors that are impacting them in the workplace. So in that way, I can help them craft certain strategies and actions and behaviors and conversations that they can have with people in the workplace to help them be better leaders and to be more productive. But it really starts with them coming to coaching and identifying for me what they want to work on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a therapist, I work Again, the other side of the coin, right? I work more with those past traumas and those behaviors. And it's just so wild how automatic they can be, right? If you have a boss that has the same tone of voice as your abusive father, right? Or if you have someone that dresses the same or listens to the same music, I mean, like little triggers can cause regression, which essentially throws the brain back into those old ways of being. So someone who could be powerful out there in the world, they hear that, that tone of voice at that perfect timber, and all of a sudden they're meek and small and defeated, Right. And these, and they start second guessing themselves or doubting themselves or, or self sabotaging. Um, it, it's pretty wild how automatic that stuff can be and how hard coded it seems to be into people's brains. Do you see the same thing in the work that you do? Oh, yes, exactly. And even for myself, when I first went into the corporate world, I hadn't yet worked on my trauma. And I have a condition called complex PTSD from all of the childhood trauma. And I was being triggered by the smell of aftershave. Mm -hmm. If a, a, a male leader had a particular kind of aftershave or cologne that smelled like what my father or grandfather used to wear, 
it would trigger me right off the bat. Um, even tones of voice like you like you've mentioned and other types of behaviors that would appear con- controlling. And my clients come to coaching with the same thing. That this they will complain about a particular boss or a particular person that really triggers them and they they say I don't know why. So as we unpack that a little bit, they end up sharing, oh well that person actually reminds me of my abusive father. So then it starts to come out a little bit. And while as a coach, I can't go into talking to them about the abusive father, I can start working with them about, okay, how how do you want to handle that differently now? Because now you're an adult, then yeah. you weren't. So it it helps them to feel empowered when they can make that distinction. I don't have to respond now the way I did then. You know, I'm different. I'm an adult now. I have a voice. I can control the outcome of things a little bit more. So just doing those kinds of things in coaching with them and helping them work on their own behaviors, it actually ends up helping them be better leaders because they are sensitive to the trauma that they're experiencing in the workplace. They don't want their teams to be subjected to that, to the people who report to them. So and most of my clients are, are really good leaders. They're trying to make a difference in the workplace. They're trying to be an influence and they're trying to change culture in the workplace. So they are super engaged in coaching. I often have people ask me, you know, what do you do if people aren't engaged? Most of my clients are engaged in coaching. They show up, they do their work, they do their action items that they do after each session because they want to improve themselves and be a better influence and have productive teams who are not traumatized. Yeah, right. I mean, it's there are bad apples out there, but I think most people really want to do their best and really want to have a meaningful life, right? And a meaningful career is, I think, a, a big part of that. You know, we were talking a little bit over the break. Um, I asked you where you grew up and you were saying in Michigan and you were sharing about this kind of put on a happy face mentality, right? And And keep everything secret. I see that perpetuating in the corporate world as well. I mean, it's so much about appearances and about being all put together, and it just, I don't know if the word is, makes me angry or upset or just confused. Like, it seems like, you know, if you could have everyone in the room, just be like, yeah, we're really messed up, right? <laughs> just like acknowledge that, right? And be like, yeah, everyone's got issues. Everyone needs help. Everyone's got triggers. I mean, what a great place to start from. Exactly. And the, the leaders that I coach, because I work with people from director level up to the C-suite. And when they come to coaching, they have a lot of anxiety because I think there's an expectation in the workplace that leaders need to know all the answers. Mm-hmm. Leaders need to know how to solve every problem because they're a leader. So it's an expectation. And that is an inaccurate uh, mindset. And leaders, it gives them a lot of anxiety because people look to them to solve, the an- to solve everything and have all the answers. So we're also working in coaching to try to dispel that myth. And leaders are so relieved. I, could, I see it in their faces during a session when we talk about how you don't have to have all the answers. If you are the subject matter expert, you're not leading. Leaders do not have to be the subject matter expert, but they need to know who to go to, who will solve the problem. They need to know what the other 
avenues are, what the other resources are. They need to be able to strategize and collaborate with people, but they put all this pressure on themselves because of the expectation. And that contributes to the anxiety, especially if someone was traumatized as a child. Most of the time, there were unrealistic expectations of them then at that time. So now they've carried that into the corporate world and they're leading and thinking that there's all these expectations. So they are perpetuating the cycle, which again, causes unhappy employees, unproductive teams, people leaving companies at record rates. Yeah. I mean, we're in the middle of the great resignation right now of people being like, I deserve better. I can't work here. I need to find another avenue. Yes. And it's, it's really created havoc in the coaching world because the leaders aren't sure how to handle all of that. They're not mm-hmm. sure what to do. And they're having to really rethink and almost come up with a sales strategy to get employees to come to their companies. They're trying to find ways that they can look better to employees than their competitors do. And it used to be that with customers, you had to look better than your competitor to take on someone else's customer, but now it's happening with employees. They're trying to find ways to attract employees and they're doing all kinds of creative things to do that. And and I think it's good that employees are having a voice as far as what they feel they need now in the corporate world. I hope it extends to behavior and toxicity to, you know, really stepping up and voicing what, what is and isn't acceptable when it comes to that too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's what you were saying earlier of that, you know, that income or that benefits package for many people, I think it starts and ends there. And because of scarcity, right? Because of dependence, like children or or family, they can take a lot of abuse and they normalize a lot of abuse because their back is against the wall. So I agree. I hope the emotional conversation happens too, where it's not just about having an attractive salary, right? Or enough vacation days, but more about what you can expect as far as your mental health goes in the workplace. And I remember as I was working my way through the corporate world and in different roles and positions, I still was raising two children as a single parent because I was divorced when they were uh, 15 months and two and a half years old. And I did remarry, but that was six years later. So for those six years, I was a single parent and I put up with the abuse in the workplace because I could not afford to lose my job. I could not afford to lose the benefits and things like that. And and you do grow accustomed to a certain lifestyle. And over time, even when I remarried and worked my way up, then we had two incomes. So we created a lifestyle around that on two incomes. So there was still abuse I was experiencing in the workplace, but I didn't want to speak up because if I were to lose my job, then we would be down to one income. So you get into this, this lifestyle that you, that you like, and then you, you feel trapped, which is what I did. I felt very trapped in the workplace. Right. Cause your back is up against the wall. I mean, it's such a, it's such a shame that mental health is a privilege, right? <laughs> And that not being abused is a privilege. Yeah. 
Because again, I mean, I guess this is where my mind is stuck. It's just, I hear so much from my clients when they tell stories of their workplace and like, you know, as a therapist, my, you know, red flags are going like, this is not okay. Right. But for them, it's like, oh yeah, well, it's always been that way. Like, you know him, he's just kind of an asshole. And I'm like, I don't know if that's kind of an asshole, right? I mean, there's a lot going on there. Um, That's not just being like a tough boss. Well, if anything, I think the COVID situation has brought plenty of attention to mental health. Mm -hmm. And and I know at the time when, companies were tightening their their wallets when COVID hit, they actually did spend more on coaching during that time because they really knew that their employees needed help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it is growing. Um, so we're going to move into our next commercial break here. On the other side, I'm going to learn more about your book um, and have some takeaways for people listening if they feel like they're in one of these situations, whether they feel like they're in a toxic workplace or even if they're contributing to a toxic workplace, how they might start to uh, right the ship and turn it around. So if you're listening and you enjoy this conversation, you know, like us on all the social media, share us, send it out to people. Um, it really helps. This podcast is really growing pretty quickly. So um, anything you can do to keep the momentum going is really, really helpful. Um, even just emailing it to one person and, and sharing the link is super duper helpful for helping us grow. So thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you on the other side of the break. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to our final segment here. In this segment, we like to talk directly to listeners and to give you something to take away, um, especially if you feel like you're in a toxic work environment, if you are being abused at work, or even if you're contributing to a work environment, you're like, I don't know, I can't even stop myself. Um I want to hear from you, Monique, of what you might tell somebody who is relating to your story. 
I really encourage people to have a voice as much as they can. Now, in some situations, if you have a voice, you put yourself in more danger. So it depends on the situation. But in coaching, we strategize what would work best given that person, their personality, the person who is treating them poorly, the company culture. Like I said, some cultures are more supportive than others. So in coaching, it really starts with a conversation and not just one. Sometimes we spend a number of sessions trying to unpack what's really happening. And I try to help people understand how they can respond differently. Not that they need to change to accommodate the abuser, but how they can look at their own behavior. And some of them decide, wow, I think I need therapy as well as a coach. Mm -hmm. So I work with a lot of people who are doing both, being in coaching and working with a therapist. But it really starts with that awareness of what you're experiencing and then being able to reflect on it either with by yourself or with someone. Self-reflection helped me tremendously in my healing journey, being able to look at the behaviors that I had, the behaviors that were unhealthy, that were repetitive, even getting into unhealthy relationships repeatedly was because of the trauma that I experienced and I hadn't yet broken through those patterns. So we try to identify that in coaching and I try to give them resources and support and referrals out if they need that. Yeah, I think that's really good things that you're bringing up. I mean, I personally have worked with coaches and therapists. I think the combination is really powerful. And what I just want to highlight in what you said is this idea of if you notice a pattern, right? If you notice a repetitive pattern, whether that be in relationships, in work, with a behavior, something that feels compulsive, that is a great thing to start to dig into because I know I can speak from my experience, it sounds like you can too, that almost everything is breakable, right? Like almost every compulsion can be changed, healing is possible, evolution is possible. Things that you think are just kind of, you know, part of yourself or, you know, fatal flaws can be healed. It's not easy and it sometimes takes months, if not years, but it is possible. So I want to hope to give people that message that are listening. And it's painful. I know in all the decades I've been working through my trauma, it has not been easy. It's at times feels like I'm walking through hell Mm -hmm. trying to get through things. But I have learned that it's important to surround yourself with support and resources. I have a, a team of people that help me when my PTSD symptoms flare up. And I've learned to use traditional forms of therapy and non-traditional practitioners. Mm -hmm. So I've got a team of about seven or eight different practitioners that I can pull from when I need them. And that combination of, I guess you could say Eastern and Western medicine has really helped me a lot. So it's, it helps to lessen the pain. And then I think the, the more you work through something, the more resilient you get. And the next time you're working through something else that comes up for you or that triggers you, it's not as difficult. So it does get easier. And I think the the part that was the hardest for me to realize was that I used to think there would be a point where I would be done with my trauma work, that I would have arrived and everything was all better and nothing would flare up. But I was really disappointed when it hit me that that's really not the case. It's 
a continuous journey mm -hmm. and things will pop up and flare up and you'll be triggered and you have to go back to doing a little more work. So I, I, now that I understand that for myself, it's not so tough for me when I'm activated again. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely true, right? Like me as a recovering addict, it's very the same way, right? The, the rock bottoms do get a lot higher though. <laughs> Right. Like that's, that's what I know is it can be like a cyclical nature, but the lows are just not as low. And that is, that's real progress. That that's real progress. Um, so Monique, I want to make sure before we wrap up here, we have time to talk about your book. Uh, it's called leading in, leading in captivity. And that's such an evocative title. I want to start you there of where did that name come from? What do you mean by that? Yes. Well, first of all, let me say it's the working title because I'm looking for a publisher at this time. I decided not to self-publish. I want to traditionally publish. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that the name also grabs the attention of a publisher. But to answer your question, I felt in the workplace like I was held captive because of the toxicity and all the roadblocks that were put up for me. My clients come to sessions and talk about experiencing having their hands tied. They're trying to lead, but their hands are tied. They're bumping into all these obstacles and toxicity is one of them. So as I put some thought into that, because the book is for executive leaders, leading in captivity just seemed perfect. It, it was, it's the perfect description of what my clients are trying to do in the workplace. They're trying to lead, but their hands are tied. So the, the subtitle to that is a survival guide for corporate executives. And it took me many years to put this concept together in my mind. It was floating around in my mind, but I didn't really know how to put it all together. I wanted to share parts of my experience, parts of my story. I also wanted to share things that I did in my recovery that helped and that are continuing to help. But I also wanted the, the reader to take those lessons and that information and apply it to how they can be a better influence in a corporation and also how they can influence their teams. So the book is actually divided into three pillars. And the first one is developing yourself because I feel any work that needs to be done has to start with yourself. You can't really fix anything in a corporation unless you first are looking at yourself and the behaviors that you need to tackle. So pillar one is about eight chapters that talks about the eight dimensions of wellness, which is a tool that I used for myself without realizing it over time, working on the physical dimension, the emotional dimension, the spiritual dimension. So each chapter is a dimension of wellness. And I talk about my experiences with my trauma and then how I use that dimension to help me grow and then how leaders can use it also. So there's really practical tools and techniques within each dimension that leaders can use. My whole goal as a coach is to help people take any information I give them and then apply it so that they can actually use it immediately. So that first pillar is, is about working on yourself. The second pillar is then how you can take that information and that's those strategies and 
influence the corporation at a higher level, at a leadership, at an executive level, and how you can use those skills in the company. And there's a lot of techniques about how to do that in pillar two. And then in pillar three, it's about how leaders can influence their team and really help their team develop. Because that I see that that is an area that's suffering a lot. People get promoted into leadership but they don't have any leadership skills. <laughs> they don't know how to lead people and they're given a team and they just really don't know how to develop these people. So their people are struggling. Their people want to be prepared for promotions. They want to improve their communication skills and the leaders don't know how to show them that. So pillar three helps the leader understand exactly what to do to develop their own people so that they can use the techniques in that way too. So I tried to write it as an all-encompassing manual, survival guide, so that the leader is working on themselves, working on their company, and working on their team. And then there's an accompanying workbook that goes along with that that takes them through some really practical exercises, lots of techniques, lots of strategies, lots of templates that they can use. And then there's a ton of resources because I, as a coach, I'm always giving out resources. So I've developed my own resource library of articles, TED Talks, videos, blogs that I've written. So there's a, a lengthy list of resources in the back of the book and the workbook, all designed as a one program, so to speak. And it will then be an online program. I'm creating an online program that we can, where we'll use the book and the workbook for people that want personalized attention from me in a, in a course. That's fantastic. I mean, it sounds like a real comprehensive wraparound program. Yeah, I really tried to make it that way. I feel like I have a lot to share and I feel like my story plays a part in that. And I think the information is really necessary. It's really needed. And um, yeah, I tried to just make it comprehensive, which is why it took so many years for me to get clear on the concept. And then I'm really fortunate to be working with a, an excellent editor who's helping me through that process. And we are pitching it to publishers at this time. That's great. I mean, I wish you all the best with that. Um, as we're wrapping up here, is there a technique or exercise you could share with our listeners, something that they might find in the book or find in the course that you found to be particularly effective? Yes. One of the techniques in Pillar One is to really do an inventory of yourself, a self-assessment. And it's it's purely subjective, but to look for repetitive behaviors that you feel you have that might be toxic and to list them. And that's a really hard step for most people because they actually have to look at themselves and be honest and address things that might not be so nice to look at. But I find that that kind of self-awareness and reflection is a really good starting point for people to, to really list the, the areas that they want to change. And then the next step would be, you know, how do you execute on that? How do you actually change? But that would be working with a coach, working with a therapist, gathering resources, learning about the behavior, self-study, anything like that to help you take the next step. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea of like taking accountability for your life, right? And taking responsibility for everything. 
you know, your own behaviors, but I think also how you respond to situations, things outside of your control, right? Things that you set yourself up for years ago. I mean, it's a big part of the work that I know a lot of coaches do that I do as a therapist of just really taking that personal inventory. And it, it is hard, right? Because I think for a lot of people, it means stepping into humility and stepping into the pain that's connected with a lot of those things and stepping into, um, feeling embarrassed or de-skilled of like, yeah, I actually don't know how to lead people. Right? <laughs> or I don't know how to have an emotional conversation or I don't know how to really listen to my wife or my child, right? I mean, there's some really painful things to really listen and to admit. But if you can, I think that's the beginning of really working through. It really is. It was the first step for me. And it's getting past that shame and that embarrassment that you would initially feel. But there are so many others in the same boat you're really not alone in this work. Absolutely. Right. And the shame is often the, the worst part of it, right? Right. Um, yes. If you can conquer the shame, the actual behavior is typically not that bad. Right. Um, so as we're wrapping up here, Monique, can you let people know where they might find you um, on the internet, website, email, whatever you want to share? Yes. My website is mdconsultingglobal.com. And on that website is all my social media links that you can follow me at. There's also a resource page on that website where you can download a lot of free resources regarding some of the things we've talked about today. And then my email address, and I'd love to hear from anyone, is monique at mdconsultingglobal.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, thank you listeners so much. Again, if you can promote this, share this, do all the social stuff, really helps us to grow. Um, check out that resource page. There's a lot of really good stuff on there that can help you um, as you're growing and developing as a leader. So thanks for being here, Monique, and we'll see you all on another episode of From the Ashes next week. Take care. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same. <laughs>